It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome everyone to Mysteries Abound, episode 37. Our first article this week comes from the www.ghosttheory.com website and it was sent to me by one of our listeners called Sean M. It's entitled The Strange and Creepy Phenomena, Black-Eyed Kids and it's by Yavia Ortega. You know, as a writer of the paranormal... I come across a lot of weird and almost impossible stories to believe. Dinosaurs that still roam the earth, flying humanoids reported all over the world, and black-eyed kids. No, not kids with a bruised eye, but cases of reported children who approach individuals and ask for random favours or help. These kids are reported to look normal in appearance, except for their solid black eyes. No sclera, cornea or iris are visible, just solid black. The mannerisms that these children show upon encounter are not like any you would observe in children in that age group. Usually witnesses say that these children appear to be in a trance-like state. They can be described as lethargic, catatonic, forceful and even demanding and insistent in getting you to do what they ask. What makes it worse is the eminent fear that the witnesses report feeling when they encounter these BEKs. It's like a rush of fear and anxiety hits them. Most cases that I've read about include the same type of feelings of danger. BEK cases are harder for people to accept. Most are inclined to accept the possibility of shadow people over the possibility of BEKs, and who can blame them? It sounds like something out of the pages of Children of the Corn. My grandparents once told me a story that might be related to BEKs. It happened back in the 50s in the small town of Outland, Jalisco, Mexico. The town of Outland is a rural town a few hours outside the bustling city of Guadalajara. As the story goes, my grandfather was walking home late one evening. This road he decided to take was a less travel road. No houses were nearby, no street lamps illuminated the road. Just big trees that aligned the sides of the road were about the only things one could see. Just as my grandfather was coming around a corner and nearing the town, he noticed a young boy sitting on the edge of the road. Surprised to see a young boy out so late in the evening by himself, my grandfather asked him if he was okay. 
the boy told him that he was too tired to walk and needed to be carried into town. My grandfather thought it was an odd request. As he stood there, he remembers that this boy would keep asking him to carry him into town. My feet hurt so much and I can't take another step, he said. Can you carry me on your shoulders? Not feeling too comfortable with the idea, my father decided to hoist the kid up as opposed to just leaving a possible wounded child in the woods. The kid sat on his shoulders and was silent. Within a couple of yards, my grandfather told us that he had grabbed onto this boy's feet, a natural reaction when you sit a child on your shoulders, and that right away he noticed that this boy's feet were not normal. His toenails were more like talons, my grandfather told us. The toenails that he saw on his feet were inches long and thick, kind of like claws. Immediately this sense of danger and fear came over my grandfather and he instinctively threw the boy off his shoulders and without looking back ran the next few hundred yards home. He did not hear the boy make any sounds or yells when he threw him off his shoulders. My grandfather knew that he was in danger and acted accordingly. A few things to note in this story. Both my grandparents told the story in a precise manner. My grandmother can attest to seeing my grandfather come home in a state of panic. He was visibly exhausted from his run and visibly terrified. The same story he told her back in the 50s is the same story he still tells to this day. Could this be an encounter with BEKs? Or was it my grandfather's overreaction to a boy with bad hygiene? Although nowhere in the story did my grandfather mention anything about the boy's eyes. I think that since it was dark out, he could not be sure. What he did know for sure was the terrible feeling that he had once he swung that kid up onto his shoulders. In this article, there's also a link to the paranormal.about.com website, and it's a Marine's encounter with some black-eyed kids. And here's the story. You'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who is tougher than a US Marine. These soldiers are trained in combat, survival and to face the threat of imminent bodily harm or death. But perhaps they're not quite prepared when it comes to encounters with the unknown. Consider this report from a Marine using the name Reaper31 who had an unexpected and altogether unnerving experience with the mysterious phenomenon of the black-eyed people. To make it even more harrowing, these black-eyed entities appeared to be small kids. This is the Marine story. I'm a Marine stationed at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. I live in the infantry barracks off of River Road. I recently had a rather strange encounter with a pair of black-eyed kids. I live on the third floor of the barracks that have open walkways on the outside and the rooms on the inside. This happened on a weekend back in November 2009. It was a weekend so almost every Marine was out, either home, drinking or sleeping, only a handful were left in the barracks awake. I stayed in that weekend because I was broke and had no money to go out. I was watching a movie when I heard a knock at my door. Figuring it was my roommate who lost his key again, I went and opened it. Instead of a drunken roommate, I found two little kids standing on the walkway. Only these kids freaked the hell out of me. I don't know what it was about them, but as a Marine we're always told to listen to that little voice in your head, because it just might save your life from an IED an improvised explosive device. Right then, that voice was screaming at me to shut the door and lock it. There was also the fact that these kids had absolutely pitch black eyes. I mean no white or any other colour to them whatsoever, just black. But I pushed those things aside and asked them what they were doing there so late. They responded by saying that it was really cold out and they wanted to come in and read. 
I was confused as hell, because I've never met a kid that wants to read. Also, there was no mention of any parents or anything else you'd expect a lost couple of kids to say. I couldn't take my eyes off their pitch-black eyes. It was like they were sucking me in. I felt horrible and was suddenly frightened for my life, like I needed to immediately take cover. They just stared at me with those goddamn eyes. I took a quick look up and down the walkway to see if any other marines were out, but there was nobody in sight. I turned back to the kids who I noticed had taken a step forward towards me. I got the feeling like I was being hunted, like these kids were predators out for their next meal or something. Instinct gave way to reason and I decided to listen to that voice and shut the door and locked it. I heard soft, constant knocking for the next five minutes before I heard my window rattle and then nothing. I went down to the officer on duty the next morning and asked him about it and he said he hadn't heard or seen any kids in the area at all, and dismissed it saying that I'd probably had too much to drink last night. Only, I hadn't been drinking at all, or anything like that that night. I don't know what or who those kids were, but I doubt any of the families here would let their kids wander around at night on a military base. And there's a bit of a commentary at the end of this story. As we have heard in many other stories of black-eyed people they often ask to be invited in. They don't try to barge in. They don't threaten. They only seem to need their targets to voluntarily allow them into their homes. For what purpose? What would happen if they were allowed in? Who are these black-eyed beings? And from the listfirst.com, one of our countdown style articles. Ten recent scientifically solved mysteries. Since the beginning of modern science, we have been solving the great mysteries around us. Because of recent advances in science and technology, we now have the ability to unravel some unknowns like never before. This list consists of ten such mysteries which, fortunately, do not render any of our previous unsolved mysteries lists defunct. Number 10. The Epidaurus Theatre Acoustics The ancient theatre of Epidaurus near Athens, Greece, was constructed in the late 4th century BC and is one of the best preserved ancient theatres. Even in ancient times, the theatre was considered to have great acoustics. The actors can be perfectly heard by all 1,500 spectators without amplification. To demonstrate the theatre's great acoustics, tour guides have their groups scattered in the stands and then show them how faint sounds can be heard at centre stage. How this sound quality was achieved has been the source of academic and amateur speculation for many years. One of the theories suggested that prevailing winds were carrying the sounds. It turns out that the answer is in the seats. In 2007, researchers at the Georgia Institute of Technology have discovered that the limestone material of the seats provide a filtering effect, suppressing low frequencies of voices thus minimising background crowd noise, so the seats act as natural acoustic traps. It is still unknown whether the acoustic properties are the result of an accident or the product of advanced design. 
Number 9. The Crystal Skulls Most people are familiar with crystal skulls from the film Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. However, there are actually many serious crystal skull collectors that claim they are pre-Columbian and were made during the Aztec or Maya civilizations and exhibit paranormal phenomena. In 2008, a team of British and American researchers using electron microscopy and X-ray crystallography examined skulls from the British Museum and Smithsonian. A detailed analysis of the skull's surface revealed minute rotary scratch marks around the eye sockets, teeth and cranium. This was clear evidence that the skull was cut and polished with the wheeled instruments, and the Aztecs never used the wheel. The researchers concluded that the skulls were cut from a piece of Brazilian rock crystal in Europe. They were then probably sold to collectors as a relic from the ancient Aztec civilization. Many museums have now removed the skulls from display because of their questionable origins. Interesting fact. For the hardcore crystal skull fans out there, I should mention the Mitchell Hedges skull, which is probably the most famous skull of all. It was allegedly discovered in 1924 by the adopted daughter of British adventurer author F.A. Mitchell Hedges. Hedges claimed that the skull dates back at least 3,600 years. Detailed examination, like the experiments mentioned above, have never been done on this skull because the present owner of the skull will not allow testing. Number 8. New England's Dark Day On May 19, 1780, an unusual darkening of the day sky was observed over the New England states and parts of Canada. Since communication of the day was very primitive, some people in New England applied religious interpretations to the event. Even today, New England's Dark Day is still regarded by many as a supernatural event. Different explanations were discussed from volcanic eruptions to celestial cataclysms. In 2008, nearly 230 years later, University of Missouri researchers combined written accounts and tree ring records from fire-damaged trees to determine that the dark day was caused by massive wildfires burning in Canada. During a fire, the heat goes through the bark, killing the living tissue, then a couple of years later the bark falls off, revealing the wood and an injury to the tree. The researchers studied tree rings from the Algonquin Highlands of southern Ontario and many other locations. They found evidence that a major fire had burned in that time period that would have affected atmospheric conditions hundreds of miles away. Large smoke columns were created and carried into the upper atmosphere, accounting for New England's dark day. Interesting fact. Accounts of New England's dark day include mentions of midday meals by candle night, night birds coming out to sing, flowers folding their petals, and strange behaviour from animals. Number 7. The Face on Mars The Sidonian region on Mars attracted a great deal of attention because one of the hills in that region looked remarkably man-made. The region was first imaged in detail by a Viking 1 orbiter that was launched in 1975. Several images were taken by the Viking, including one taken in 1976, showing one of the Sidonian Mises that had the appearance of a face. Scientists dismissed the face as a trick of light and shadow, but then a second image also showed the face at a different sun angle. This caught the attention of organisations interested in extraterrestrial intelligence and some talk show hosts who believed the face was a long-lost Martian civilization. Most scientists still held the belief that the face was just a consequence of viewing conditions. In 2003, when the European Space Agency launched Mars Express, it was able to combine data from a high-resolution stereo camera and create a 3D representation of the face on Mars. 
The most recent image, which is on this website, I think would silence even the most faithful believers. The image shows a remnant massive thought to have formed from landslides and an early form of debris apron formation, but no face in sight. Interesting fact. The Cydonia area is of great interest to planetary scientists because of its location. The Mises are in a transition zone between cratered highlands to the south and smoother lowland plains to the north. Some think the northern plains are all that's left behind of an ancient Martian ocean. Number 6. The Barrel Eye Fish The fascinating aspect of the barrel eye fish is the tubular eyes, which are excellent at collecting light at depths of up to 2,500 metres. The puzzling part is that the eyes appear to be fixed in place directly above its head. This has baffled physiologists for decades because it would be almost impossible for the fish to look for food. Recently, scientists using a remotely operated vehicle studied the fish at depths ranging from 6 to 800 metres. They discovered a previously unknown fact. The tubular eyes exist behind a transparent fluid-filled dome and the eyes can rotate within a transparent shield that covers the fish's head. This allows the fish to peer up at potential prey or focus forward to see what it is eating. The barrel eye fish was first discovered in 1939, but the transparent nature of the fish wasn't known because when the fish was caught in nets at a different depth of water, the see-through part is destroyed. Interesting fact. Keep in mind when you look at the picture above that the two small holes in the front of the fish are not eyes. The eyes are the two green domes inside the top of the head. And if you go to the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the Mysteries Abound link and then on the link to this episode and then the link to this article, you can see a picture of the barrel eye fish and there's also a clip of the barrel eye fish swimming around as well. Number five, checkers or drafts as we call it here in Australia has been around for more than 400 years and has been enjoyed by millions of players. Since 1989, computers have worked around the clock to try and decipher the game's 500 billion billion possible moves. In 1992, a computer was narrowly defeated by world champion Marion Tinsley, who is widely regarded as the best human checkers player ever. Finally, in 2007, a computer program called Chinook, developed by researchers at the University of Alberta, can now play a perfect game of checkers. In 2007, using between 200 desktop computers at the peak of the project, Chinook can recognise every possible move made in a checkers game and determine the correct counter move. If neither player makes a mistake the game will end in a draw. Number 4. The Unknown Titanic Child Days after the Titanic sank, the body of a baby boy was found and recovered from the North Atlantic. After the child could not be identified, he was buried in Nova Scotia with a tombstone reading simply, The Unknown Child. In 2001, researchers at Lakeland University in Ontario were granted permission to exhume the body. By consulting the passenger lists, they had narrowed down the possible identity to one of four children, Gosta Paulson, Eno Panula, Eugene Rice and Sidney Goodwin. Initial tests concluded that the body was Eno Panula, However, in 2007, this was shown to be not true. More advanced DNA testing was carried out on a tooth from the body, and when compared to the DNA of a surviving Goodwin relative, it proved an indisputable match. 
It confirmed that the unknown child was Sydney Goodwin. Sydney was the youngest of six children born to Fred and Augusta Goodwin from Fulham, England, and were migrating to Niagara Falls, New York. All were on board. Neither Sydney's parents nor his siblings' bodies were ever recovered. Interesting fact. The sailors aboard the recovery ship were very upset by the discovery of the unknown boy's body and paid for his monument. He was buried on the 4th of May 1912 with a copper pendant placed in his coffin by recovery sailors that read, Our Babe. If you go to the link to this article in the show notes, there is a link within this article to the grave monument and a photo of the rest of the boy's family. Number three, an ancient tablet is deciphered. This could be a case of one scientifically solved mystery solving another, so I will try and explain the second one under interesting facts. The circular clay tablet shown above was discovered 150 years ago at Nineveh, the capital of ancient Assyria, in what is now Iraq. The tablet shows drawings of constellations and pictogram-based text known as cuneiform, which was used by the Sumerians, the earliest known civilization in the world. For decades, scientists have failed to decipher the tablet. In 2008, two scientists, Alan Bond and Mark Hempsell from Bristol University, finally cracked the cuneiform code. By using a computer program, that can reconstruct the night sky thousands of years ago, the two scientists were able to establish the tablet was a night notebook of Sumerian astronomers and refers to the events in the sky before dawn on the 29th of June, 3123 BC. What makes the discovery even more amazing is the tablet also shows a large object travelling along the constellation of Pisces. The symbols show the trajectory of the object to an error of one degree to hit Kofels, Austria. Kofels is recognised as the area of the largest rock slide in the crystalline Alps and has given rise to numerous theories about the cause of the rock slide. There is no crater, so to modern eyes, it doesn't look as a meteor impact site should look. However, from the information gathered from the tablet, the trajectory explains why there is no crater. The incoming angle was very low, at 6 degrees, so the scientists theorise that the asteroid clipped a nearby mountain called Gamskogel, and this caused the asteroid to explode before it reached its final impact point. Number 2. Shark's Virgin Birth in 2001, a hammerhead shark was born at the Henry Dawley Zoo in Nebraska with three potential mothers in the same tank. All had been in captivity for at least three years. The birth of the shark baffled scientists for years. Some scientists thought one of them might have mated before being captured and stored the sperm for fertilisation. Some scientists believe that sharks might be able to reproduce asexually through a rare method known as parenthogenesis, or a direct development without the need of a sperm. Many were sceptical, but in late 2007, scientists confirmed this through DNA testing. After they determined which of the three females was the mother, they subtracted the mother's contribution from the offspring, and in this particular case, after the DNA was subtracted, there was nothing left. The researchers were forced to conclude that the pup had no father, making this the first documented case of asexual reproduction of a shark. Interesting fact. In 2008, scientists confirmed a second virgin birth of a shark at the Virginia Aquarium and Marine Science Centre. A 5-foot, 94-pound Atlantic blacktip shark died of stress-related complications related to her unknown pregnancy. During the necropsy, a 10-inch shark pup was found, surprising aquarium officials. DNA testing on the embryonic pup proved that the pup carried no genetic material from a male. And solved mystery number one, the flight of the bumblebee. 
This is at the number one spot because it inspired the list. As I was growing up, I used to hear when you take in consideration a bee's wingspan, along with the bee's weight ratio, it is aerodynamically impossible for them to fly. I also used to hear the only reason a bee can fly is because it thinks it can. I always thought that that was a really cool explanation, even though I knew it was probably not true. Scientists have had many theories, but were not able to explain exactly how the unaerodynamic bee was able to fly. Finally, in 2005, with the assistance of high-speed cinematography and mechanical models of the bee's wings, scientists were able to put this perplexing mystery to rest. As it turns out, the bee flaps its wings at an amazing 230 times per second, much faster than smaller insects. Their analysis revealed sufficient lift was generated by unconventional combination of short, choppy wind strokes, a rapid rotation of the wing as it flops over and reverses direction, along with a very fast wingbeat frequency. Interesting fact. In order to understand more how bees fly their heavy little bodies around, the researchers force them to fly in a small chamber filled with a mixture of oxygen and helium, which is less dense than regular air. As if the aerodynamically challenged bees didn't have enough on their plate. This required the bees to work harder to fly and gave the scientists a chance to observe the bees' wings and body under stressful conditions. And there's a link in this article to a bee's flight in super slow motion. And now to a trio of stories from the paranormal.about.com website. And the first is entitled Normandy Nessie Has the Mysterious Creature Returned? And it's by Preston Rudy. A family vacationing in Florida from Ohio say they spotted what they described as a 30-foot-long serpent-like creature swimming in the water off Sand Key Park on Monday. Was it another sighting of Normandy Nessie, the Bay Area's version of the Loch Ness Sea Monster? Russ Sitlow, who first videotaped a mysterious black 20-foot-long creature in the canal behind his Madeira Beach home more than a year ago, believes it could be Normandy Nessie. Sitlow named the creature Normandy after the road he lives on. Experts say what Sitlow and others have seen could be anything from a manatee to an anaconda. Most of the time when people see this stuff, they don't get to see it for any length of time and it's so far away, it's really hard to make it out, says Vernon Yates of the Wildlife Rehab and Rescue. Sitlow now believes Normandy is an anaconda and he believes he's seen more than one swimming in the water behind his home. People don't want to believe that. They don't want it to be true because of the tourist stuff, Sitlow said. Yates says he's captured several dozen anacondas in the Bay Area over the years, with the largest measuring about 15 foot long. But Yates says anacondas will usually stay away from salt water. Does the possibility exist it could be an anaconda? Very much so. Probability, not reality, because again, he would stay out of salt water, Yates told 10 News. And if you go to the show notes and click on the link to this article, there's a couple of videos and some footage of some of these things that have been spotted. And on to the second tale from the paranormal.about.com website. And this is from the Your True Tales section. Invisible Barrier at Sea. North Sea, June 2008. 
Four friends and I were going out to sea on a friend's fishing trawler to fish for mackerel. The trip was about five miles from the coast of South Shields, a small sea town in northern England. It was a lovely clear summer's day and the sea was very calm. We were about one hour into the fishing when one of my friends, Paul, decided to cast his rod on the other side of the boat, he being the only person to do so. Me and my other three friends carried on casting on the other side, leading to Paul having a lot of success in catching the fish. We would cast about 50 to 60 feet, then reel in quickly, a technique known as mackerel spinning. Then something strange happened. When Paul cast his rod, the weight and lure flew through the air and was abruptly stopped mid-air with a pinging sound as if it had hit metal about 30 feet away and 20 feet up. Paul yelled, Did you see that? All of us spun around to see. Suddenly the sea became rough and the boat started to sway for about 10 minutes and then it calmed. I don't know what he hit, but I think it was something invisible, made from metal, observing us. Was it a craft, a sea vessel? Who knows? But one thing's for sure. Something stirred the sea up and frightened the hell out of us. Needless to say, we returned back to shore quickly, to the pub, to tell our friends, and they still laugh about our story today. And our final story from the paranormal.about.com website, A Father's Last Goodbye. And it was submitted by Zaf. Despite being a Muslim, I've always been sceptical about ghosts, spirits and paranormal activity, until very recently. Last month, exactly 13 years since the death of my father, our family had chosen to take an evening walk through his favourite forest trail in Hampshire, England. After walking for nearly an hour, we decided to take a rest at a clearing in the woods just off the public footpath. I left the rest of the family to take some time to myself, just meandering through the trees. Light was fading fast, so I turned to return to the clearing after only a few minutes of walking, and then I saw him. There, only ten or so feet away, was a man, unmistakably my father, with his signature moustache and combed hair, wearing our Pakistani national dress. Whilst my heart was pounding madly, he began to approach me noiselessly, and when he was only about one foot away, he reached out and touched my face. I can say, even to this day, that I had never felt anything that cold, and when I reopened my eyes, he was gone. He looked completely solid and real, no silvery nonsense, just a human image whose presence I could feel. Shaking and confused, I headed back to my family as fast as I could and chose not to share the experience with them, for my father had obviously only wanted to see his son one last time. www.unmuseum.org an article by Lee Christek The Dogon, The Nomus and Sirius B. In Mali, West Africa lives a tribe of people called the Dogon. The Dogon are believed to be of Egyptian descent and their astronomical law goes back thousands of years to 3200 BC. 
According to their traditions, the star Sirius has a companion star, which is invisible to the human eye. This companion star has a 50-year elliptical orbit around the visible Sirius and is extremely heavy. It also rotates on its axis. This legend might be of little interest to anybody, but the two French anthropologists, Marcel Griol and Germain d'Etelin, who recorded it from four Dogon priests in the 1930s. Of little interest, except that it is exactly true. How did a people who lacked any kind of astronomical devices know so much about an invisible star? The star which scientists call Sirius B wasn't even photographed until it was done by a large telescope in 1970. The Dogon stories explain that also. According to their oral traditions, a race of people from the Sirius system called the Nomos visited Earth thousands of years ago. The Nomos were ugly, amphibious beings that resembled mermen and mermaids. They also appear in Babylonian, Akkadian and Sumerian myths. The Egyptian goddess Isis, who is sometimes depicted as a mermaid, is also linked with the star Sirius. The Nomos, according to the Dogon legend, lived on a planet that orbits another star in the Sirius system. They landed on Earth in an arc that made a spinning descent to the ground with great noise and wind. It was the Nomos that gave the Dogon the knowledge about Sirius B. The legend goes on to say that the Nomos also furnished the Dogons with some interesting information about our own solar system. That the planet Jupiter has four major moons, that Saturn has rings, and that the planets orbit the Sun. These were all facts discovered by Westerners only after Galileo turned his telescope to the stars. The story of the Dogon and their legend was first brought to popular attention by Robert K.G. Temple in a book published in 1977 called The Serious Mystery. Science writer Ian Ridpath and astronomer Carl Sagan made a reply to Temple's book suggesting that this modern knowledge about Sirius must have come from Westerners who discussed astronomy with the Dogon priests. The priests then included this new information into older traditions. This, in turn, misled the anthropologists. This is a possibility considering Sirius's B existence was suspected as early as 1844 and was seen through a telescope in 1862. It doesn't seem to explain a 400-year-old Dogon artefact that apparently depicts the Sirius configuration, nor the ceremonies held by the Dogon since the 13th century to celebrate the cycle of Sirius A and Sirius B. It also doesn't explain how the Dogons knew about the super-density of Sirius B, a fact only discovered a few years before the anthropologists recorded the Dogon stories. It is also important to remember that although many parts of the Dogon legends seem to ring true, other portions are clearly mistaken. One of the Dogon's beliefs is that Sirius B occupied the place where our sun is now. Physics clearly prohibits this. Also, if the Dogon believe that Sirius B orbits Sirius A every 50 years, why do they hold their celebrations every 60 years? Sirius A is the brightest star in our sky and can easily be seen in the winter months in the Northern Hemisphere. Look out for the constellation Orion. Orion's belt are the three bright stars in a row. Follow an imaginary line through the three stars to Sirius, which is just above the horizon. It is bluish in colour. Sirius is only 8.6 light-years from Earth. Astronomer W. Bessel was the first to suspect that Sirius had an invisible companion when he observed that the path of the star wobbled. In the 1920s, it was determined that Sirius B, the companion of Sirius, was a white dwarf star the pull of its gravity caused Sirius's wavy movement. White dwarfs are small dense stars that burn dimly. Sirius B is in fact smaller than the planet Earth. 
One teaspoon of Sirius B is so dense that it weighs five tons. So, did alien fishmen pay a visit to ancient Earth and give the Dogon their knowledge? Or was the Dogon's culture contaminated by Western visitors? Or could the Dogons have had ancient technical or non-technical means to find this information out? Or is the whole thing just a matter of coincidence? The question may be settled as larger and more powerful telescopes take a look at the Sirius system. According to the legend, there is a third star, Sirius C, and it is around Sirius C that the home planet of the Nomos orbits. Most scientists do not consider any part of the Sirius system a prime candidate for life, though. When Temple first issued his book in the 1970s, there was no solid evidence of a Sirius C. In 1995, however, two French researchers, Daniel Benest and J.L. Devent, authored an article in the prestigious journal Astronomy and Astrophysics with the title, Is Sirius a Triple Star? and suggested, based on observations of motions in the Sirius system, that there is a small third star there. They thought that the star was probably a type known as a red dwarf and only had about half the mass of Sirius B. So, has the home star of the Nomos been discovered? Or is this just another strange coincidence? Montezuma Castle, Living the High Life, and this comes from the weirdus.com website. Slip a fiver to the guy in the funny hat, and it's just a short walk out the back door to one of Arizona's most remarkable perplexities. The postcards in the visitor's centre provide all the details you're going to see, but catching sight of the real thing still delivers a subtle jab to the optic nerves, not to mention the reasoning centres of the brain. Lodged in a cranny on the side of a limestone cliff, Arizona's most staggering housing community teeters about 100 feet overhead. It's still advertised by the National Park Service's Montezuma Castle, Although, as it's pointed out in every write-up, Montezuma never lived there, nor gave it his celebrity endorsement. Some say it isn't a castle either, but if a five-storey stone refuge atop a sky-high embankment doesn't count, I don't know what does. This mind-boggling feat of architecture has been attributed to the Sinagua Indians, who lived in this region as agriculturalists and traders. According to the experts, they built this dwelling in the 12th century, completing it in stages until it consisted of 20 rooms stacked in five layers, totalling a height of about 40 feet. When you consider that the build site was accessible only by a precarious series of ladders, as well as how many tonnes of rock, mortar and timber it took to construct these homes, the achievement is incredible. While a cutaway diorama attempts to depict the cliff dwellers as ordinary people, it's hard to think of anyone who cooks breakfast ten storeys up the side of a sheer crag as run-of-the-mill. Tours were once conducted through this cliffhanger address, though visitors were still required to reach it via ladder, same as those who lived there. Their visits included not only a stroll through the various levels, 
but also the presentation of a glass-encased mummified child that was disinterred during repair work, one of the many bodies discovered buried throughout the structure. Due to the damage caused by increasing tourism, however, both the tours and the mummy show were terminated by 1951. No one's quite sure why the Sanagua chose to settle down on high. Theorists have offered explanations as varied as tradition, utilisation of the warm southern exposure and an appreciation of the view. Being farmers, it's possible they just didn't want to take up any plough space. Many assume it aided in defence against invaders, but that makes little sense when all the enemy would have to do is unwind with a good petroglyph and wait down below until they ran out of food. Perhaps one of the park's volunteer guides had the best explanation. They kept looking up there at that spectacular cave and one day one of them said, All right, let's get going. We're going to build something up there. Just to cloud the situation a bit more, no one can be sure of the former inhabitants' fate either. After living on the side of a cliff for about 300 years, the Sanagua up and left. Again, theories differ as to the reason. Their destination has also remained unknown, though many Hopis claim the Sanagua as ancestors. All we can be sure of is that by 1450, Montezuma's castle sat abandoned, waiting four centuries to be rediscovered. And just to a couple of news stories that have a bit of a mysterious undertone that I found whilst looking for articles for this episode. The first comes from the www.liverpoolecho.co.uk website and it's entitled A Witch Curse is Blamed for a Wirral Magazine Pub Fire and it's by Lorna Hughes. The landlords of a Merseyside pub which was almost destroyed by a fire believe a mysterious curse is to blame. The blaze at the 250-year-old Magazine Hotel in Wallasey caused £200,000 worth of damage and left managers Linda and Les Baxendale living in a caravan for three months. A small fabric witch figure which hung from the ceiling of the main bar was stolen two nights before the fire. And with a history of accidents befalling those who dared to touch it, the couple are convinced the two are connected. The official cause was a power surge which blew up the pub's fuse box starting a fire. Linda, 59, said, Part of the history of the pub is the two witches and a little devil, all made from brown felt, which were hanging by the bar. No one knows exactly how long they were there, and we don't know who gave them to the pub, but we think they were there for at least a hundred years. They were covered in cobwebs and dust, because we were told that if anyone touched them, bad things would happen to them. The Baxendales have managed the magazine hotel, known locally as the Mags, since 2000 and Linda also ran the pub between 1980 and 1993 with a late partner Phil. When they first moved in they received an anonymous phone call warning them not to touch the witches. She said, We found out that a decorator took them down while he was working there in the 70s and then was involved in a serious car accident at the top of the road. Phil once happened to touch the witch by accident and the following day he fell through a trap door leading to the cellar and broke his collarbone. 
Someone else fell over the following week and broke both his knees. It's spooky. Linda says she's convinced something terrible would happen after she learned about the theft. She said, One of my bar staff, Charlie, saw a man take the witch from the ceiling on Friday night and run out. He wasn't a regular, because they all know the story. I suppose I am superstitious because I used to say to the witches, I tell people not to touch you, so look after me. But when I found out one had gone, I said, Oh God, something bad's going to happen now. We live above the pub and on Sunday we woke up at about 7.45am to the sound of smashing downstairs. I thought someone had broken in and was using a baseball bat until Les went downstairs and found it was a fire. It was terrifying. If it wasn't for the prompt response of the fire service, the mags might have burned to the ground. The remaining witch and devil were found in the scorched remains of the bar after the fire on April 18, but Linda says they have since vanished. A friend bought the couple a replacement witch from Pendle, which now hangs in their place. They are celebrating the pub's reopening with a beer and cider festival next week, which will include a special brew called Witch's Revenge. Linda said, what happened was so strange that I thought I'd better put up the new witch just in case. And from the www.dailymail.co.uk website, an article by Andrew Levy. A plumber unearths a World War II prisoner of war camp for 10,000 German soldiers in his back garden. Turning over the soil in his back garden, David Murray spotted something glinting in the sunlight. When he realised it was a dog tag from a Second World War German prisoner, he asked his landlord if he could dig a little deeper. Literally. In the following months, Mr Murray unearthed the treasure trove of wartime memorabilia. The 2,000 items include coins featuring Nazi emblems, dog tags and buttons from uniforms, and even a live grenade that had to be destroyed by an RAF bomb disposal unit. The 39-year-old plumber discovered that the edge of his rented bungalow is on the site of a former prisoner of war camp that once held 10,000 people. It was a huge shock when I found the tag, said Mr Murray from Much Haddam in Hertfordshire. The grenade was a complete shock too. I spotted it in the ground and didn't realise what it was. It didn't look like the ones you see in the films. I tried to defuse it a couple of times, but I couldn't get the screws off the top. It's a good job because the RAF said it was very unstable. They weren't happy with me when I told them I'd been holding it next to my ear and listening to see if it would go bang. It's really incredible to think that 70 years ago, 10,000 prisoners of war were walking around in my back garden. The Winches camp opened in 1939 and held Italian prisoners, but later took Germans. It was also used for Allied training and accommodated US soldiers and Gurkha units as they prepared for war. After the war, former prisoners were able to come and go as they pleased, and some stayed there until 1947, working as farmhands in the area. The 40-acre site was pulled down in 1950, and houses were built on it over the next 20 years. Since Mr Murray found the dog tag, he has excavated just one acre and discovered six pits where rubbish was buried when the site was bulldozed. Fearing people may try to steal the artefacts during the night, he is continuously patrolling the site. Historian Richard Maddams, who was helping Mr Murray to research the camp, said, My biggest challenge is tracking down people who were at the camp, which is very sensitive as many of them have passed away. Mr Maddams has contacted former German POW Walter Scharnigal who remained at the camp until 1947 and worked for the Hertfordshire War Agricultural Executive. Mr Scharnigal wrote in an email that he had loved much Haddam. We enjoyed a lot of liberty and I really loved this little village, which I visited again in the late 60s 
when I discovered some of the remainders of our old huts. Early in the history of the Mysteries Abound podcast, I did an article from the mysterymag.com website entitled The Devil's Footprints. Anyway, the other day I was looking in the mysteriousbritain.co.uk website and found another article about this intriguing story, and I thought, why not revisit it? And this story also takes a slightly different slant to the original that I did a while back. The Devil's Footprints The mysterious footprints which appeared overnight in heavy snowfall in southern Devon in 1855 have never been adequately explained. According to contemporary reports, they stretched for over a hundred miles and went through solid walls and haystacks, appearing on the other side as though there were no barrier. The extent of the footprints may have been exaggerated at the time, and they may have been the result of freak atmospheric conditions. But in truth, the footprints, if that is what they were, still remain a complete mystery. On the night of the 8th of February 1855, heavy snowfall blanketed the countryside and small villages of southern Devon. The last snow is thought to have fallen around midnight, and between this time and around 6am the following morning, something, or some things, left a myriad of tracks in the snow, stretching for a hundred miles or more from the River X to Totnes on the River Dart. The early risers were the first to find them, strange, hoof-shaped prints in straight lines, passing over rooftops, through walls and covering huge areas of land. The set of prints were even supposed to have bridged a two-mile span of the River X, continuing on the other side as if the creature had walked over the water. It soon became clear that the phenomenon was widespread, and some of the more scientifically minded examined the prints in detail. One naturalist sketched some of the marks and measured the distance between them. It was found to be eight and a half inches. This spacing seemed to be consistent wherever the tracks were measured. It was also noted that the way in which they were set out, one in front of the other, suggesting a biped rather than a creature walking on four legs. Some clergymen suggested that the prince belonged to the devil who was roaming the countryside in search of sinners, a great ploy to fill the churches, while others rejected the idea as superstition. It is true that a feeling of unease had spread through some of the population who watched carefully to see if the strange footprints would return. They did not and after a couple of days the news spread out of Devon and made the national press. The phenomena sparked correspondence in some of the leading papers including the Times and Illustrated News. This brought more accounts to light and led to a plethora of speculation by eminent scientists and laymen alike. It seems that most of the southern villages of Devon from Totnes to Topsham had been inundated with the prints in all manner of absurdities. Some stopped abruptly and continued after a large break. Others stopped at walls as high as 14 feet, only to continue on the other side, leaving untouched snow on top of the wall. Some were even said to have travelled through narrow apertures, such as drain pipes. The papers picked up that some kangaroos had escaped from a private zoo belonging to a Mr Fish at Sidmouth, but the track's description bears no resemblance to the tracks a kangaroo would leave. 
Sir Richard Owen, the eminent biologist, suggested that the tracks were made by badgers roaming the countryside in search of food. He explained the strange shape of the prints as a result of a freeze-thaw action. This explanation only holds as much ground as the other theories given at the time. These included roaming raccoons, rats, swans, otters, and the theory that a hot air balloon passed overhead trailing a rope. These could explain some of the tracks made that night, but certainly not all of them, unless all of the above were to blame in separate occurrences. There are similar scattered cases from other parts of the world and also one written account in Britain. According to Ralph of Cogs Hall, who also recorded strange aerial phenomena during his era, a writer from the 13th century, on the 19th of July 1205, a strange hoof print appeared after a violent electrical storm. In mid-July, these tracks would be only visible in the soft earth and the electrical storm suggests some kind of natural phenomenon as yet unknown. The Devil's Footprints remain an intriguing mystery that will only truly be solved if the phenomenon happens again and can be examined more closely. And that's written by Daniel Parkinson. Well, everyone, that concludes episode 37 of Mysteries Abound. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And before I sign off, I'd like to thank uh, Sassy Scorpio 72, Cole J13, Podcast Junkie in LA, and Ole Graz for providing feedback for the podcast at Podcast Alley or in iTunes. Much appreciated, everyone. And remember, if you'd like to provide feedback for the podcast, please do it via email or through iTunes or Podcast Alley as it's greatly appreciated and really, really does help the podcast. And if you want to email me, it's mysteries at origins.info. And don't forget I do two other podcasts, Origins and Bizarre Bizarre, which can both be found in iTunes and other places on the internet. The music today came from the musicalley.com website and the bandwidth was provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. Thank you everyone for listening and it's bye for now. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.